Hi, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a, a great guest. We have Cody Massimino, who is a, a philosophy student and a fellow at the Center for Stateless Society. So, hi, Cody. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so, so we are going to to talk today about the 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 kind of of complex moment that I feel is 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 living the 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 libertarian movement because. In one hand, there is a lot of, of things going on, particularly in, in the U.S., where where the, the where most people associated libertarianism. Although I think, it, in some ways, like Rothbard, uh, at one point, at one time, point libertarianism should be a, a global movement, and I'm someone based on Peru, I, I also hope that. But at the same time. Um, I understand that that a lot of the things that have been happening with with Trump, his anti-immigration record, you know, his uh, statements of his administration that have been very homophobic and sexist, and and also like um, like his position against uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, and. The big, uh, uh, you know, free market rhetoric, even if it's much bigger than 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 when previous Republicans used to do it, has made that many libertarians are are still kind of defensive of him and trying to uh, to portray him as, as the only choice. And at the same time, I feel that, that in some ways, libertarianism and 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 not just left libertarianism, but sometimes even more in some ways, centrist libertarianisms. Libertarians have been uh, at the same time trying to to have a much more clear voice that they are not the same as as Trumpism as and as conservatism, but the institutional alignments make things a lot complex. So, how do you do you see this this time? Um, yeah, well. I think I think I agree with you that um, uh, you know we're not only seeing um, you know what you might call left libertarian uh, groups um, distancing themselves from Trump a lot. Um, you know, a place like the Center for Stateless Society, you would expect to to do that based on its positions in the past, uh, obviously. Um, but your the point you make about even um, you know you could call centrist libertarian organizations are doing something similar um, is completely true. I mean, the, if you look at the Libertarian Party itself, which you know isn't completely representative of libertarianism, I think I think that's a common kind of mistake to kind of try to reduce American libertarianism to the, the official political party. Um, and it's not the same thing, the movement in the party, especially because many libertarians opt for non-electoral means of social change and aren't that interested in the political party process. But obviously the libertarian party is still, you know, a vocal and influential institution in American libertarianism that many libertarians are involved in. And so you can get somewhat of a gauge from, from, from them. And they have been similarly loud, um, you know, distancing themselves from Trumpism and from, you know, this kind of paleo trend um, and this anti-immigration uh, trend. So um, I think that's a good thing. Um, I think the groups that perhaps insufficiently distancing themselves from uh, modern conservatism, um, which is wholly in the grasp of Trump 
you know, those libertarian groups have certainly lost sight. Um, you know, even if they, if they can even be called libertarian, I mean, I mean, Trump is just so far from it. Um, um, you know, to me, that's, uh, probably pretty useful discussion on where the word libertarian actually stops being a useful indicator of someone's uh, views. But, but it's a real shame because, you know, if you look at, if you look at a lot of the institutions in libertarianism in the American libertarian movement that um, have, have not distanced themselves from Trumpism and, you know, have, have even gone as far as to hitch their, their wagon to modern conservatism um, you know, understood as this, uh, you know, right wing side of the culture war against um, supposed, uh, you know, leftist ideology in academia and media and uh, Hollywood and things like that. That whole general feature of the modern conservative movement has been happily embraced by uh, many libertarians, the paleo libertarians. Um, uh, the Mises Institute, for instance, you know, most of the people affiliated with them are not distancing themselves from Trump and these kinds of views. If anything, they're pushing back on what they see as too many libertarians uh, embracing and falling for, I guess they would say, these leftist values. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to be, you know, as kind of charitable as possible to their to their perspective on this. Obviously, I don't share it, but but it's it's kind of a shame, in my opinion, because it's not like this is a new thing, right? Like fusionism the the idea that libertarianism and conservatism are sort of these useful natural political allies um and while they're not identical you know fusionism doesn't mean to reduce one to the other at least in theory uh you know maybe practice it probably does but in theory it doesn't um it just says you know that that the, the, there are gains to be had um by libertarians allying with conservatives um, um in the in the context of american politics against these perceived enemies um um, you know, on the left, um, socialism and Marxism and, and various ideologies that they see they're combating. And that's why fusionism emerged as a project of the Cold War, because communism was that uniting enemy that brought together libertarians and conservatives. And even though the Cold War is long gone, it's still there. It's still such a, a, a central feature of American libertarianism. It's certainly not extricated from it um, nearly as much as some people think. Even now with Trump and a lot of mainstream conservatives in the past few years publicly disavowing libertarian free market economics, that kind of stuff. You know, you can look at Tucker Carlson um, on Fox News, who has made this a big part of his rhetoric um, and others, you know, and Trump himself that that although I don't think he's ever called out libertarian specifically, that would probably alienate the paleos. But um, but obviously Trump, you know, has just I mean, you know. Repeatedly, I mean, he has no—he uh, has no understanding at all of this idea of laissez-faire economics, of, of of a free market society. I mean, his his whole ideology is has nothing to do with that. Um, insofar as he has any ideology, but his policies have nothing to do with that, at least. Um, so, so I think it's it's certainly something we should have expected um, that um, the some libertarians would hitch their wagon to broadly the Trump movement. Um, but it's definitely a shame because if you look back, you know, at, you know, the last Republican administration with Bush, it, it was this totally different sort of climate, um, at least from my understanding of it, you know, and that's because Bush was not a paleo conservative. 
Um, he, you know, he had this brand of kind of compassionate conservatism and neoconservatism and stuff that really turns off the paleos. And, you know, under Bush, you have, you have things like, 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 like the Mies Institute, for instance, you know, and LouRockwell.com, you know, two, two of the probably biggest online platforms uh, that represent paleo or right libertarianism, however you want to call it. Um, you know, they, they were, you know, I mean, they called Bush a fascist, um, you know, I, one of Rockwell's um, pithiest little lines is, um, I believe, in the early 2000s, he called it red state imperialism. Um, you know, and imagine them using that language now to describe Trump. I mean, they never would. They wouldn't even come close. They, if anything, they, they should now complain that fascist is an overused term, even though they, if anything, if, if that's a real problem, then they contributed to it for years by calling Bush and then Obama these kinds of these kinds of terms but suddenly trump is in office and since he's you know on the right side of the culture war and he's giving expression to their um you know culture war uh positions um in the public sphere suddenly that it's not in their interest to call him a fascist or to call this red state imperialism even though even though trump has just you know obviously continued all of the horrible policies that we saw under bush and under obama um you know, and, and if anything, intensified them. Uh, immigration, uh, as you mentioned, foreign policy is is horrible under Trump. Um, uh, he's continued the, the genocide in Yemen um, wholeheartedly. He, I think he vetoed just last year um, a, a slight attempt to to push back at that in Congress. And, 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 you know, I mean, he has no, he has no distinguishable difference from Bush and Obama in policy it's just in his in his rhetoric that appeals to this crowd of libertarians that I think they just view as somehow, uh, I think in a kind of warped way. I mean, true, you know, they think it's they, they uh, at least based on their actions, they think it, it it matters more than his actual policies, like his his actual his rhetoric that gives voice to certain ideas and pushes back against perceived cultural opposition. Um, they see as taking the central stage. And that's, that's a real shame, obviously. I mean, at that point, substantial libertarianism, opposition to state violence, that becomes secondary at best. Um, um, so there are a lot of avenues to kind of look at this situation. Um, and the libertarian movement in America is so broad and so kind of fractured in a lot of ways, even maybe more so the past decade. Um, um, you know, I mean, the reactions are very diverse to Trump and, and stuff. So, so it's certainly no monolith um, with that. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it has been interesting seeing the developments in the, in the Gato Institute. Like, I, I feel that that probably some of the people that were involved with the Cato Institute, like ten or twelve or fifteen years ago, probably will have been, in some ways, slightly more sympathetic of of, of Trump. And and while it's true that some people in um related to the Cato Institute, particularly the people on, on taxation policy and on more economic stuff, even some have are working in the Trump administration. It's true that I feel that that there is a, a, a respectable size of the people working in, in the Cato Institute that are trying to make clear that, you know, like that Trump doesn't stand for libertarian ideas, and not just in, in, in the Cato Institute, but also in recent. And and I feel that in some ways, while they do this kind of, of, of things, they also are at least some, no, not 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 all, have, are much uh, uh, 
I, I don't know if if the war is like insecure to do a much more clear break with the right, because I honestly don't think that there is uh, in reality much uh, much hope to to the more right. It's something like uh, there is a historian. He's he's a he's a, a German historian, but uh, who, who studies. Uh, U.S. from a transnational perspective, he's Thomas Zimmer of the of the University of Freiburg, and he was saying that what he thinks is is going to happen if 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 somehow the Trump loses is that um, what probably is going to happen. Some some people think that you know the GOP is going to become more moderate, but he thinks that quite the contrary, the GOP is going to become much more uh right wing and it's going to particularly on on, on social issues which i think it's is, is the is the 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 lane that i feel they are trying to 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 put more ground to it because i feel uh, like uh it's 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 what some people on the right say about like the Kind of Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley is, is diverse and have people like Peter Thiel that has much more right wing ideas. Uh, it's true that for a lot of people in 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 the Silicon Valley, like the idea of you know like uh, Trump talking about like uh, uh, basically putting some kind of control toward them, it's it's something that is frightening. Um, not necessarily for political reasons per se, but, you know, for economic reasons, because obviously if they cannot, uh, it's true that, you know, like one thing is like banning bots, other thing is, is like, uh, advertisement and other things that are, you know, like the, particularly in the social media that are not, you know, uh, that don't, are not. Pay uh, social media, so the ones that live on advertisement, uh, sometimes banning advertising could, could affect a lot, you know, of their operations. So, in that sense, there is kind of a timid alliance between some sectors of of of, of the of the you know business war with with the Democratic Party is going to become much more entrenched. But at the same time, I feel that, that the GOP is kind of has this mentality, which is very different than what some people think that is, you know, championing the white working class, because as, as we have seen, you know, with the, with the parties, with the votes and things like that, that it's, they appeal to a much more um, upper middle class or upper class that has much more uh, reactionary views rather than than appealing to the real working class because like the real working class uh, may have different ideas about social issues but many times their priorities are much more uh, have to do with the economic things um, as the other day was pointing out um, um, a Marxist of all people he he was uh, he was saying that. Uh, uh, sometimes that what in some countries uh, the research has has showed that people that go to church are not necessarily the poorer, because sometimes the people that are really poor uh, have to work all days, and and it's 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 uh, I think it's a very kind of complicated picture, the one that is going to to happen particularly now that that the U.S. is, is having a very 
complex economic recession that that, that could last for a while. Yeah, yeah, the, the, it's hard to really make any predictions um, at this quite tumultuous moment uh, in time for American politics. Um, but I, but I think uh, you know your description, you know, is accurate. Um, it's kind of interesting, I think, because in a way, I mean, I see a kind of parallel situation on the right and on the left, you know, and the people on the right, like, I don't think they really appreciate this or discern this, um, um, certainly not all, but, but it seems like generally the narrative on the right doesn't make any, uh, dis uh, difference between, um, what on the left you might say are the two camps of, and again, this is a generalization, but um, um, because it's not, it's not just either or, um, but still you can, you can, you definitely make some sense of two camps on the left, one being more Marxist, more focused on class, uh, more focused on economics, more focused on, on sort of the proletarian revolution and that kind of attitude. And then the other camp on the left is, you know, the, the identity politics, the, the less focus on, on class per se, but focus on race and sexuality and gender and uh, disability uh, and related features of identity that are not purely economic phenomenon, although they tie into economic phenomenon. They are not reducible to economic phenomenon. Uh, the way that race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, manifest in our society. Uh, that is so, so you see these camps and, and they're at a constant war with each other. Um, you know, and the identity politics camp condemns the Marxist camp as being class reductionist, um, you know, and the Marxist camp condemns the identity politics camp for, um, you know, not paying enough attention to class and ultimately prioritizing these other things, these other features that maybe they're not irrelevant, you know, certainly Marx, you know, I mean, it depends on, on, on the, 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 the Marxist, but you know, that's, that's a big, that's a wide range, but um, they're not irrelevant, but, but they should not take precedence over the issue of class and um, the issue of this kind of economic materialist analysis that they get from Marx. And so they see that as kind of threatening the overall project of the left and the overall project of the emancipation of the working class by elevating uh, non-class features like race and gender um, above. But you, and 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 the people on the right don't really appreciate this difference. I often see people on the right, you know, almost from the outside, or you know, comment on these disagreements on the left as if the left, you know, is just this, uh, you know, constantly inward on each other sort of sort of dynamic where they're eating each other and i mean there's infighting if that's the term you want to use and at literally any ideology or group or particularly radical groups um you know there's nothing unique to the left or leftist ideas or anything um you know what's happening is just like this is a long-standing ideological disagreement that people on the right don't seem to be wrapping their heads around at least not as much as they should and they would benefit from doing so because like i said there is a parallel here this is not just a thing on the left. This is a thing on the right. And that's what you were sort of getting at when you were talking about the working class um, and supposedly the real working class um, and, and how they relate to social issues 
Um, and, and on the right, you have this similar kind of uh, divergence kind of emerging where, because everyone on the right is against, you know, I mean, it's, if anything defines the right wing in America right now, it's, it's the opposition in the culture war to what they perceive as uh, left wing, um, you know, cultural Marxism. And so right in the term, they lump together those two camps. I mean, for, you know, identity politics and class and Marxism and race, sexuality, it's all just jumbled in together. And they're obviously all related, but there's no, there's no attempt to kind of discern nuances. Um, and on the right, you have the same phenomenon because the, the right ultimately, because they've defined themselves in opposition to the left and the culture war, they have not, uh, abandoned or rescinded identity politics in any real way. Um, I'm not sure, um, you know, I mean, we could get into a whole debate about the term identity politics. I think in some ways it's actually a really broad term and it's hard to break out of if possible at all. But the right wing has defined themselves as the party of white identity or not as, I mean, the party, the Republican party, but also just the, the broader right wing movement, you know, as being about white identity politics. And this involves this kind of appeal to the supposed working class, as you mentioned. I mean, that was a huge part of Trump. They are becoming much more populist in this in this way, um, mirroring a populist impulse on the left. Obviously, it manifests completely differently in policies and attitudes. But but there's that that populist. There's that we're 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 working for the you know uh, the betterment of the least well off and the people that have been um, hurt the most by you know especially like modern international global capitalism and 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 finance and and, and you know too big to fail banking policies and and you have the whole list of, of you know things that that you perceive as you know and may very well be you know um there's a whole debate into itself but you know uh harming harming the working class and so on the right you have this same like competing issue of priorities of do we do we emphasize the the white identity politics regardless of class, or do we have to emphasize specifically class position? Um, you know, and there's not a clear answer. I don't think on the right. I mean, a lot of people are caught in between, and as there's this mix of of it, there's no discernment um, there. So, so it can be kind of murky to talk about um, also, but. But it's interesting to me that the right is now getting this new kind of parallel phenomenon um, of identity politics and class and how these kind of these movements and attitudes and kind of, you know, analytic frameworks at the end of the day, how they relate and how they compete. Um, you know, ultimately, I think they're more amenable to each other than the people who think that there is this clear divide. Um, you know, it seems to me class is another feature of identity. Um you know, and it's related to race and gender and sexuality and age and disability. So all these other things, they're all kind of intertwined. Um, I don't, I don't see a hard line in between them, but, but that, but, but a lot of people do. And that's, and that's really like an important factor in understanding these intra debates on the left. And I think also on the right now more and more. Yeah. I think it's now that, that, um, you you it's it's interesting what what you point out because i feel that it it's true this kind of phenomenons 
happening in both sides of the kind of identity versus economics kind of question. But I was wondering, uh, I don't know if, if you saw the, the debate in the Friedman Conference. The Friedman Conference is a conference organized by, by the, um, the Australian Taxpayers Association, which is uh, Australian libertarian kind of organization. Uh, and it was really interesting because it was a debate between uh, if, if the West is particularly good for libertarianism. And it became a very curious debate basically about the Middle East. And it's it's um, it's curious that somehow like they didn't mention Latin America because like I think Latin America has a lot of problems. That's that's for sure. And I uh, live in Peru that has is living one of the biggest crisis in you know and and with the coronavirus pandemic. That being said, like uh, it is also a, a region that is pretty libertarian in a lot of ways. Uh, in Bolivia, for example, like uh, the selling of dynamite is legal; like it's completely regulated. And some people will ask, "But why?" Because a lot there is a lot of mining, and and so uh, the That's mines that are not. That's a hilarious huh? way. Sorry to interrupt. That's just a hilarious, um, you know, like. Hey, this place is really libertarian. You know, even dynamite's legal. Like, like that's the as if that's like this quintessential libertarian policy position. Like, legalized dynamite. Maybe it should be, but yeah. by the way, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it, it like the the city of El Alto. Like, it's it's a it's also like. Um, Jesus Walker has written about it. It's, it's it's pretty libertarian. Like, they sell basically everything. Like. Um, Uh, the director of, of of research of the Latin American Institute in 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 the in Oxford University, uh, John Captree, who has written a lot about both Peru and Bolivia, has referred to El Alto as a monument to free trade. Like it, it has basically an agorist uh, free uh, trade policy in some way. Like it's uh, Bolivia and Peru are among the the largest black markets in the world, uh, and and. And it goes like way behind in time, like uh, uh, Potosi in 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 what's now Bolivia in, in the colonial times was was known as the as the largest silver mine in the world, and it, it at one point it produced four percent, fourteen percent, almost half of, of the of the world's uh, silver production, and. And what surprised to the Spanish chronicles was that uh, in 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 the city because it was uh, both a mine and a city, it, in the city like the it was kind of an spontaneous order of, of indigenous people that went to sell everything because like before it, it's kind of the the tale of the of the trade caravans although it's like use the the term trade is kind of complex because like there wasn't properly um morning both but it was kind of an exchange networks that 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 cemented even in times before the the ink empire in the times of the Tiwanaku civilization the kind of expansion that that led to to probably the discovery of, of, of Potosi so it, it i mean it it's it and it happens also in mexico like uh, people could be surprised to hear but the zapatistas actually are are relatively market friendly that like they 
they live of of, of selling uh, coffee to to different places, um, uh, and this happens more or less in, in in most parts of Latin America. There is kind of 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 particularly indigenous based uh, uh, trade networks that sometimes involve. Uh, uh, Complex organizations that, that try to to somehow circumvent the rules of, of the governments because, like, with the amount of bureaucracy that exists in 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 Latin America, it's very difficult sometimes to import. So they they in many ways kind of created their own parallel system. Uh, and in Peru, it's very funny because uh, if, since. Uh, Initially, like anime didn't have uh, Spanish translations, they basically did their own translations, and they start to to selling them in a in a in just one store in, in a mall, and but it became so popular that basically all stores <laughs> in, in the mall started selling things related to anime, and and that place is now called the Latin American Aki Havara. So it's basically a mall dedicated entirely to 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 you know to products related to anime and general pop culture and it all started with someone making their own fan subtitles of of, of animes so i think it in in a lot of ways there is kind of this um, latin america is is a place that has uh, you know like it's not. I mean, politicians are, are very bureaucratic in many ways, but the people have what I will call staunch libertarian instincts in many ways, and and sometimes that is missed in the in the kind of reading that many libertarians have about Latin America. Yeah, that's um, you know I am far from. Uh, an expert in, in Latin American politics and Latin American libertarianism. Um, so your your little history lesson is really quite quite insightful and quite fascinating. Um, uh, you know, I live I live in America and I tend I tend to look at things um, that more directly relevant to American politics um, insofar as I pay attention to politics at all. Um, but you know, uh, libertarianism, uh, anarchism. Obviously, these are the whole point of them is that they are universalist projects for, um, you know, about the emancipation of humanity, not particular countries, citizens or anything like that. You know, even though some libertarians kind of, uh, I think are still stuck within that more nationalist, uh, framework, which is, which is really limiting. And, and I mean, completely, I think alien and, and foreign to a genuinely substantial libertarian perspective. Um, you know, so I think thinking about these causes on a global scale is is, is a vital necessity. Um, um, otherwise, I mean, you're kind of doing an injustice to the causes themselves. You know, especially in the context of the modern world and modern capitalism, thinking about the global poor. Um, you know, and 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 these and again the complex stuff with with free trade and intellectual property and a lot of competing concerns and interests and variables on the best way to help the global poor, um, I guess. But, but whatever the case is, like I am completely on board and I, on, on with, with your sort of attitude with, with looking for, you know, 
places around the world that that libertarianism or anarchism is actually being practiced, right? I mean, I think that is that is the main mover of social change. Is, is I think what you're talking about can be described as building the, the new world in the shell of the old, the, the wobbly slogan, which I find really indispensable in understanding a particularly, you know, a distinctly libertarian attitude towards social change, um, which use it as a project from the bottom up instead of the top down, um, you know, as this grassroots piecemeal uh, imminent project, not electing representatives and, and outsourcing the, the uh, you know, the, 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 the civil the civic action in a way and just saying, well, you know, I've, accomplish my civic actions by voting as this may be kind of relevant to, you know, the election coming up, but, but obviously there's so much more to social change and, and looking at these instances you're talking about in, in Latin America and Peru, Mexico, it's really fascinating to me. Um, you know, I love to look more, more into them to speak, speak to them with more detail. Um, but you know, the, the, your description of them, um, even briefly, it, it, it strikes me, you know, as something that libertarians elsewhere in the world, especially American uh, libertarians in the United States, should 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 look at and 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 look at the way that people can engage in direct action, um, and specifically, you know, entrepreneurial direct action, which really describes a lot of what you're talking about with those black markets and stuff. You know, th- you know, this is this I think is the kind of the best way to get the most for our efforts on the margin. Um, and making a more free world uh, rather than going through the electoral process. Um, so, you know, it's really, I think, you know, the world, the world is not in a particularly great place at the moment, although, you know, I don't know if it's ever been a particularly great place, but, you know, 2020 has not, not been ideal. And, but it is a little bit uplifting and, and a little bit optimistic to hear about, um, you know, your list of these various kind of projects that, that are disparate, but nonetheless united by, you know, this common kind of attitude, um, towards, towards direct action. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it, it has some complex, uh, uh, features that are quite curious. So Al Jazeera of all places has doing a very cool, interesting coverage of, uh, of the coronavirus crisis in here in, in Latin America. And, they were doing a video about uh, Peru and it, like uh, so Peru the, the the early days tried to do a very top down approach and and but the problem was that they say to a lot of people that they have to stay home but many people live on 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 being a street sell, a street seller so in Peru like seventy percent of the economy is informal so it, it's it's the third largest informal economy in the world. Uh, so obviously, a lot of people uh, were ha- were having to go to 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 work in the streets, right? To to sell clothes or other things, and 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 so then started the detentions, and 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 and, and there was a, 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 the the only ones protesting of all people were uh, an anarcho-feminist collective saying that that that. That women, particularly, and, and and people in general, should be able to 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 sell on the streets, and and it was kind of curious because sometimes, like, there is kind of this uh, idea that you know, like, 
anarchism and libertarianism are, are worlds apart uh, in, in in many places, but I don't think necessarily that the case. And and now that you, I, I am thinking that I am remembering that actually like Bolivian television for some reason did a report about the 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 book of Brian Kaplan, the case against education. Uh, so that's what's uh, interesting. I honestly don't know how that happened, but somehow, like, for some reason, I, I was watching Bolivian television and so started see, seeing that. And and there was an article of the economies of all places about El Alto, which is this uh, city that, that is very near uh, La Paz, but it's basically, a, um, the, the entire city is basically a market. And what the article was saying is basically that in some ways the the El Alto was kind of a mix between different ideological projects in one city and maybe in, in, in more spontaneous ways that it could seem because in some ways like um, in El Alto there is a, a very kind of strong um, how, how to say it uh, neighborhood associations are very strong so Many times they build the roads. Many times they kind of even build the schools. So in that sense, they 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 have this kind of very uh, uh, to, to say in some way anarchistic kind of instincts. Uh, at the same time, like uh, in in Alto, almost nobody like pay taxes because like it's a very black market informal activities. But at the same time, they have a, a kind of uh, of even if not necessarily institutionalized forms of social support to those who, who, to workers who fall ill and things like that. And 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 in that way, like it was kind of. Uh, like uh, economists basically was saying that in some ways uh, the uh, El Alto is a mix between libertarian um, anarchists and even Marxist ideas. And, and it's, it was kind of like, I think I, I once described it as for, from what I have been reading as, as a mix between like Gal Gutsch and the Paris Commune, which could sound completely <laughs> strange, but, but, but I think it, it, it kind of describes kind of this, this uh, radicalism that, that that exists, and I feel that I'm trying to, to say this because uh, I think that in some way, when 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 libertarians think in 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 the West and or in as something particularly, and when they do particular their their definition as the West just being uh, North America. Uh, Europe and Australia and New Zealand and 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 forget that also like the the you know like the influence of of different uh, ideas you know from from the Middle East which uh, from Africa from from Central Asia from South Asia I mean e even like with China has been contact for for a much longer time that that people told before. So I mean the the connections have been there and and I I feel it's very sad seeing those tr kind of attitudes that try to 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 see the west as as opposed to the rest and and kind of that it's not just uh, against cultural marxism but against islam against uh, uh like the third war in general in some way yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, I don't have much sympathy for for conceiving of 
a liberatory project in terms of anything remotely to do with protecting or saving or reviving Western civilization. I think at best those kinds of stories tend to be, you know, I mean, at best they're, they're just, I think, hilariously reductionist as you, you know, as you pointed out. And there's so many ways in which, I mean, um, you know, restricting your, your scope of concern, um, not, not as in, uh, maybe concerns not the best, but, but, but focus, um, at least on, you know, human history and the theoretical and practical, um, gains made throughout human history and kind of trying to boil it all down or bring it all, or at least attribute some significant amount to the supposed West. And as you point out, it often tends to be interpreted in a very Eurocentric kind of way and excludes Latin America. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's just a dead end project. I mean, you know, at best, I think a lot, some of the people who talk about it are thinking in terms of, you know, this, this is a universalistic goal. It's not, we're not saying like, we only care about the supposed Western, uh, part the, uh, civilization. Um, we care about all of civilization. We just think the Western civilization has come up with, you know, the best ideas and, um, you know, those ideas should be adopted everywhere and then we'd all be better off. And, you know, that's, that's not a malicious attitude or viewpoint. Um, you know, there's obviously some, some, some sensible features to that. Um, but at the same time, you know, again, it's, it's at, be- you know, at best, you're kind of being very reductionist by ignoring theoretical and practical, uh, uh, breakthroughs outside the West, the Middle East, particularly China um, and elsewhere. So, and 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 that's particularly the case with 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 if you're coming at this from a libertarian or anarchist perspective. Um, you know, I'm really no expert at all in Eastern philosophy and and um, and the history of the ancient East. Um, you know, but there's lots of good work. Um, that, that talks about, you know, Roger Long has a book the last few years that talks about, um, libertarianism in the, in the Confucius, in the tradition of Confucius and ancient Chinese philosophy about, um, you know, seeing, seeing the seeds and seeing, seeing early notions of things like spontaneous order, you know, and these, in these writers and the, these traditions, you know, and obviously these this is not part of Western civilization, but, but these ideas are there. I mean, and that really shouldn't be surprising to the people that are supposedly defending Western civilization on universalistic grounds, because why would the, the ideas of freedom have only emerged somewhere among some group of people? I mean, yes, there's like path dependency and, and, and those kinds of factors, but it would still be, kind of odd if it was just coincidentally stumbled upon, you know, like one, you know, if these ideas are so sort of, you know, organic and, and important to human flourishing, I mean, it makes sense that they popped up and, you know, they propped up elsewhere. Um, and, and indeed they have. So, um, you know, I, I don't see any, any, any point to that. I think it's kind of a fruitless project, um, thinking about things in terms of Western civilization, um, you know, and at worst it's really, it's really, you know, it just, it can it totally be just apologism for fascism and colonialism. You know, I mean, you can already see the seeds, you know, of a kind of white savior complex and the idea that, oh, well, we have the best ideas and we want to share them with the rest of the world. Well, you know, that's how you, you know, 
it's not inherently this, oh, well, we have to force our ideas on the rest of the world, but you're really opening the door to that. And, and, and obviously there's a, there's a long history there um, with, with colonialism and, and conquest and imperialism all kind of bound up in, in the supposedly, um, you know, altruistic and benevolent um, attitude and, and goal. Um, you know, so, so that's, I'd, I'd, you know, at, at best it's, I think it's kind of fruitless and at worst, it's really going to be an apologia for some of the worst violators of libertarian freedom and libertarian principles in all of history. Um, you know, the militaries of the West and, and, and the pillaging and, and the theft that they've engaged in um, worldwide, particularly the U S military and the British military. So, so I don't see any, any value there. And I think what you say about looking at these examples in Latin America, uh, the one, the example of the anarcho-feminist collective fighting for economic freedom, right? That's the way you describe that situation, it seems. So, I mean, that is that. And also, the I love the whole you need to point me to whoever came up with Galt Gulch, Galt's Gulch meets the Paris commune. That is just, Oh, that is a great. <laughs> I, I think I, I'll go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I tried to, to go in. I, I said it when, when I, I read this, the article that was, oh, it was, when, it was your I, idea. It was, it was your, Oh, <laughs> I thought you were, I thought you had been quoting somebody else. No. Okay. That is a great idea. That is a great little, I think I'm going to describe my politics that way. Cause, cause it, <laughs> It illustrates like that and the anarcho-feminist situation. Um, you know, it seems fruitful to me to talk about those things a lot more with um, libertarians in the United States. You know, as you said, it's it really is this dichotomous situation. They're viewed as completely opposing theories and opposing movements. You know, um, so-called right libertarianism, which is for capitalism and so-called left libertarianism, which is for socialism, you know, the bottom two quadrants on the political compass, which I think has its limitations, but somewhat useful for understanding. So, um, pointing more, pointing out more of those kinds of situations that are like real world instances of how these are at best, these are theoretical you know, d- differences on an abstract level, um, you know, and what they can end up doing is, is having such a hard line, having such a dichotomous delineation between these two traditions of libertarianism is completely uh, counterproductive to the goals of each, um, I think. And obviously my, I'm biased in this, um, this particular way of looking at, at things because I'm not really in either of those camps. I'm, I, I'm, you know, if anything, I'm close to the left market anarchism or the individualist anarchism of Benjamin Tucker and Lysander Spooner and, and today with the C4SS and thinkers like Roger Long and Gary Chartier. And, and so the views of, of those people cannot really easily be d- distinguished along in, in that political compass. Um, I think when I take the political compass test, it's been a few years, but I, I land roughly in the middle, which is where I guess mutualism would technically go, even though I don't think many mutuals would accept me. I don't know. Uh, but I love me. I mean, I like mutualism. I think it's really cool and it should be more popular because it's, there's some great thinkers and tradition and, and ideas. And so, um, 
you know, but nonetheless, the, the compass, the, the traditional alignment, and this goes to the left-right political spectrum in the United in politics in the United States in general, like this stuff is totally untenable and unstable, really. Um, there's a reason that there are thinkers that both libertarians and the bottom left quadrant like to say are are the uh, originators of their ideas and that libertarians in the bottom right quadrant like to say are the originators of their ideas. You know, Tucker and Spooner uh, are probably the best examples of this and, and, and that they both try to get claimed by one or either of these camps as, oh, well, you know, he was actually a socialist libertarian and he was on my side. Oh, well, he was a capitalist libertarian. He was on my side. But the, the truth is that they, the, he does not fit into those categories. He was writing at a time before those categories emerged as, as, as they, as we understand them now as these very, these very static sort of fixed concepts, you know, Spooner was a free marketeer, but he was also in some sense a socialist. He, he supported worker, um, labor, uh, labor on the means of production. Um, just not through the state, obviously he thought that was, that was completely counterproductive to the socialist goal of workers owning the means of production, but through laissez-faire and through, through unlimited competition, and through through free markets, um, um, will lead to a situation where workers would have the freedom uh, to pursue alternative economic arrangements than what they have currently available or available at the time under uh, capitalism as it exists, which is really just wage labor for most people. Um, and Tucker similarly had had reservations about this whole system of massive wage labor. So these thinkers are not equal, not easily definable in our modern categories. And it's a shame that these categories have become so fixed and static. Um, you know, I think they started to at the end of the, at the, at the, uh, at the end of the 19th century. Um, that's when individualist anarchism starts to kind of die down. Uh, Tucker's magazine Liberty ends in 1907. I think, I don't know that, that, that year's ring the bell, maybe not exactly, but, but either way, um, that tradition just sort of died out and, and then you had the cold war emerge. And I mean, then that, that cemented that totally cemented this, these two branches as being as far apart from each other with, with, cause the cold war, I think in a lot of ways it subsumed, uh, right libertarianism or free market libertarianism into capitalism um, and American capitalism in particular, which historically has not been free markets. You know, it has been plagued by slavery and imperialism and colonialism and theft and later with, with mercantilism and corporatism. And so, well, a lot of the imperialism, a lot of that stuff continues on into the, the mercantilism period in like the early 20th century, obviously, and up until today. So, so anyway, my point is that, um, you know, these, these differences were cemented by the cold war with right libertarians being equated with this system of capitalism and then left libertarians, you know, previously socialist libertarians, anarcho-communists, things like that, um, being subsumed into the socialist movement, which was uh, specifically with the Soviet Union. And both of them were sort of undermined um, by the upper parts of the quadrant, I think, um, if, if, if you understand what I'm saying. Like, 
the bottom right was subsumed into the top right and the bottom left was in the top left. And so, I mean, you know, Roderick Long has a great phrase for kind of what happens when these two camps view themselves as polar opposites, the two bottom quadrants, and it renders genuine libertarianism invisible, you know, is what he says. And and that's really accurate and really like a, a really important puzzle piece that so many libertarians in the United States, I think, don't understand, don't know the history of as much, certainly don't internalize. And it, it shapes how they how they view the landscape of politics and political movements and affiliations and, and, and various things like that. And, 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 and it's a real shame, you know, um, I think what you're talking about with these really interesting, I think I'd love to look into them more, these instances in Latin America with the Anarch FMS collective, um, engaging in boycotts and, um, you know, anything like that to me, just, it, it makes me a little more optimistic for like, you know, these are ultimately abstract theoretical delineations that we, that we can sometimes we view as too, too cemented in and we get stuck into them about we, we need to break out of that. Um, you know, and you can, and, and, you know, I mean, some people like to call us bottom unity, right. The unite uniting the two bottom. And I don't know, I'm a little suspicious of unity when, whenever that's invoked, whether it's national unity or, bottom unity or left unity or right, whatever it is. Although bottom unity is certainly among the best of those options that I just listed. Um, but I don't think unity should be a cover for just somehow ignoring differences in ideology and values or pretending like they don't exist or reducing one, uh, uh, one camp to the other. I mean, those are all kind of ways of going wrong with the project of supposed unity. Really, I just mean like recognizing this attitude that both libertarian socialism and libertarian capitalism have the same roots. It's, it's liberalism. It's, you know, it's Perdon, it's Tucker, it's Spooner, Declare, Godwin. It's, it's, you know, and even back to Smith and, and Locke, you know, this, you know, the centrality of, 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 of these concepts of freedom and liberty and, and equality, they all play a role in these ideological traditions and they get cashed out in all these different ways over time. And, at that point, at this point, they're sort of blocked off from each other, but they should be brought back in into dialogue with each other much, much more. Um, and that's sort of my hope with, with things. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly one could be a critic of many of the more reactionary elements of libertarianism that I think are, are very dangerous and, and should be fight. But at the same time, I think that there are some things to recognize about libertarianism. And, you know, like people like uh, Radley Balko were talking about, like libertarians like Radley Balko uh, uh, that started working at recent were among the first to talk about the issue with police brutality. Um, uh, Elizabeth Nolan Brown was one, among the first of talking about the issue of of uh of sex worker rights and how it was being uh sex workers were being targeted by by the police and it's uh, she i think she has described as the new war on drugs and also about the old war on drugs it was uh, a lot of opposition the most principal opposition i think has been uh libertarians opposing the the, the war on drugs um as as uh, i know that that is russell don't don't like the term libertarian but i think Probably his uh, being adjacent to to libertarians in some way has uh, made his book A Renegade History of United States interesting. Particularly the chapter about 
about like how the sex workers <laughs> aligned with the mafia to the queer sex workers allied with the mafia. And it was when, when police repression started that they uh, end up, you know, like uh, in the massive protests that with time uh, started pride parade. And, and it's uh, kind of this revolts, I think, are, are, are part of, of libertarian history. Um, and and I, I feel that, that the... Uh, and 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 a story much more complex uh, is the the story about like the, the relationship with business of, uh, and civil rights, which is a, a, a quite complex tale. Um, uh, for example, like the, there is a, a, an African American historian who has written about the relationship between McDonald's and, and the African American community, which is very complex. But for example, like she was explaining why in some cities, like the McDonald's business were in, were in uh, attack in, 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 in the lootings because in a lot of, 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 of black neighborhoods, like McDonald's are owned by black franchises. So in, in, in that sense, uh, it's, it's much more complex, uh, the, the narratives that, that it, what it has been told and, and for some reason, like a lot of people, like uh, it was also when some libertarians started saying, you know, this, this, uh, um, uh, this BLM are, you know, are, are anti-business commies and some people like that. And, and, and actually one of the people that, pe- that uh, was associated with the leaderships, <laughs> quote unquote, of, of the, of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, like in, in Seattle, uh, in, in his bio, he said, "Support black business." So, it's it's all this kind of of, of relationships are, are 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 very complex, and and also not to forget the like the idea uh, about feminism in in a more broad sense that accomplish also like the, the economic liberty as we were talking about, like uh, that this anarcho feminists were were complaining because a lot of times. Uh, particularly for single mothers, like uh, the the particular for the single mothers that that lack uh, education, um, and uh, you know, like being a street seller is more or less their only uh, path in, in in the labor force, which is very discriminatory, and and in that way, like uh, understanding like the 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 complexity of, of those issues and the intersection of 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 of, uh, of the fight against uh, racism, xenophobia, uh, sexism, uh, homophobia, and all forms of discrimination, and 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 the idea of of, of libertarian and, and the possibility that libertarian ideas could be part of that equation. I think that's a, an interesting kind of phenomenon that sometimes gets overlooked. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I you mentioned that, uh, uh, you know, authors like Radley Balco and Elizabeth Nolan Brown, both of whom I couldn't uh, recommend highly enough. And they're both obviously libertarians, but they're also both, you know, if if the term centrist libertarian has any meaning at all. And, you know, it's kind of somewhere in between the left and right extremes. Um, I think Radley and Elizabeth would, would be somewhere around there. 
even though those on the right probably consider them lefties and many on the left probably consider them righties. But that's kind of the, you know, you kind of have that, you're kind of asking for that when you're in the in the center, you know, whether, whether you like it or not, that's, that's what's going to happen. But, um, but I agree with you that, um, you know, libertarianism has this incredibly unique uh, thing to offer to, you know, traditionally understood left-wing causes like um, supporting sex workers or opposing police brutality or supporting immigrants, um, you know, and libertarians for, for all of the, you know, negative consequences that we've mentioned here that the libertarian movement in the United States might be bound up in. There's nonetheless many great things that the libertarian movement in the United States has been involved in. And that does involve being some of the earliest supporters and, um, and both on, and in terms of explicit political party platforms, but also just in terms of major thinkers and, and traditions and, 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 and literature. Um, the, the libertarian movement in the United States was among the, the very before, way before even progressives and, and the modern left um, libertarians were supporting gay marriage and opening borders and ending the drug war and, you know, just go down the list of all these issues. Um, and that's always caused some hostility between even supposedly or, you know, centrist libertarians and right-wingers. Um, and, you know, you mentioned this idea of like in, these intersectional issues. And I think the intersectional concept is, is, is pretty useful, um, even if sometimes used like many other concepts, if you haven't noticed, <laughs> in less than less than fruitful ways, but the concept itself is useful, um, you know, if if approached, I think, with nuance, and that is that this basically kind of brings the conversation in a circle because earlier we were talking about issues of race, gender, sexuality, age, and class, and how they're all kind of entwined. And that's kind of what the intersectional analytic framework, I think, has to offer. Kind of what illuminates, what illuminates for us is is that is that yeah, it's, we should, we can't really be, you know, these are only broken apart on the level of theory and on the level of abstract reasoning. In reality, in in practice, it, all these issues are are interrelated. I mean, there's 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 one society, you know, there's there's one person. Who, who might have a certain identity in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of class, et cetera. Um, you know, but it, but it all manifests, you know, in this way that's, that's unseparable in the real world. And sadly, I think much of the left that is otherwise often on board with this intersectional outlook and trying to understand the interlocking nature of oppression better they ignore the distinctly libertarian contribution to the discussion, which is that the state itself is a major, if not the major um, organization of oppression and marginalization in the contemporary world, if not recent history completely, and perhaps especially in the 20th century, for God's sakes. So it's frustrating to sometimes talk to leftists that, don't exactly see how the state can be another axis of oppression that's unique yet unrelated yet interrelated with all these other axes of oppression. And then it's similarly frustrating to talk to libertarians who are so concerned about the oppression of the state, but then don't nearly pay as much attention, if at all, or maybe they're outright hostile and often cases to 
to those issues of race, gender, sexuality, class. So, I mean, we need some sort of holistic sort of approach and attitude here to bring these things together. Um, to me, one of the most illuminating sort of uh, metaphors and helping me parse these issues out is uh, Marilyn Fry uh, uh, makes an analogy. She's a feminist scholar. Um, and sh she has uh, this thing called, she calls it the birdcage of oppression. And if you look it up on Google, I think you can find the paper where she talks about it. Um, and so this idea is that oppression is kind of like a birdcage in that when you look at a birdcage, none of the individual bars are keeping the bird contained and within place. You know, if there was just one bar, the bird could just fly around it, obviously. But the fact that there's all the bars surrounding the bird, uh, that is what locks the bird in place. That is what keeps the bird contained and in the cage. Not just one bar, but the interlocking nature of all the bars working in concert, working together to constrain the actions of the bird in every direction. And this is a good way to understand, I think, oppression in the real world with human beings and their choice sets and their options being systematically constrained and limited by different bars, um, which can be understood as different institutions, um, you know, patriarchy, um, you know, can be understood as a bar that, that obviously, you know, and, and, and obviously patriarchy consists in a bunch of bars itself, but you can understand patriarchy, racial supremacy, ageism, classism or slash capitalism, the le all, most leftists will be on board with roughly understanding all these things as another bar in the birdcage of oppression. Each one blocks off the choices and the, and the avenues of betterment that marginalized people could otherwise pursue. And that's why they're worth taking down, tearing down even. But they don't think of the state as this like additional bar. And that's often why they are way more amenable and much too easily, uh, too much too willing to use the state in ways that will reap consequences that they do not intend and are unforeseen and are completely unreconcilable with their goals of tearing down the other bars and liberating people. The state stands in, 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 a, in a situation of mutual reinforcement with these other bars, just as like those other bars stand in mutual reinforcement with each other. It's all this interlocking thing. Um, so libertarians only concerned with one bar, leftists with the other, and they're often talking past each other. I think there's a way to really get on the same page about this though with this, with this analytic framework and understand that there's a lot of similar actually attitudes involved. It's just that language gets in the way sometimes and, and, and confuses the dialogue. Um, but, but to me that, that kind of just that image, that metaphor of the bird, you know, this bird cage, um, it really, really helps me, um, you know, illuminate and, and helps me communicate better, you know, across different political affiliations and stuff with, with understanding people's worldviews. So I wish more people would adopt that sort of outlook. Yeah. I, I honestly hope that, that, that we could reach that kind of understanding to, to try to, to, to see a complex situation and a complex kind of framework and, and see, uh, its connections, but also the possibility of, of going beyond that. Uh, so I think we 
could leave it here. It has been really great talking to you, Corey. Uh, so where do people can find uh, your work uh, if you have something to promote? Oh, um, sure. Well, well, first, thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure um, talking to you. It's been a fun discussion. Um, and I haven't been on your podcast yet, so it's, it's, it's real great to, to come on and, and talk about this stuff with you. Um, I know we share pretty similar perspectives on a lot of it. So um, if people want to find stuff I write or anything like that, um, you know, I'm on Twitter at Corey Massimino. That's just my name. Um, you can also go to c4ss.org. Or look at C4SS on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, I have articles on that website. And if you if you Google my name, you'll find other articles I've written. I've written articles for, for other websites. Uh, I wrote an article on Playboy, Guardian, some 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 of the more cooler places I've been able to get published. But um, it's 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 around if you if you look for my name. And and uh, I guess I I do have something to promote. Um, there, uh, I think next year it's kind of finally come out. It's it's going to be the, the the new Rutledge Handbook of Anarchism of, of Anarchy and Anarchist Thought. Um, so an academic textbook, um, but 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 quite accessible and, and with a number of independent scholars contributing, such as me. Um, it's edited by Gary Chartier and Ch- and Chad. Uh, uh, what's the last name? Oh, I can't remember right now. All right. Well, sorry to chat. It's got a V in it. But <laughs> anyway, the Rutledge Handbook of Anarchy and Anarchist Thought. So I have a chapter in there on um, Murray Rothbard called Two Cheers for Rothbardianism. Kind of a critical but appreciative ap- approach to Rothbard's work and, and career. Um, and like I said, the book is an academic textbook, so it's really expensive. Um, so if, if anyone's interested in what I have to say about Rothbard and a lot of what we talked about here, uh, really comes um, up in that chapter, actually. Um, if anyone is curious about that, you know, they can just find me on Twitter, you know, message me there or, or email me at corymassimino at Gmail and I can send you the chapter so you can look at it. I'm happy to do that. Um, yeah, that's about it. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's a good talk. Okay. That's great. So. Um, well, we in order to finish, I think we could. Um, I'm gonna share with, with you the this song of Mika Martini Wino, which is from a Chilean net label, which is Pueblo Nuevo, which is trying to mix uh, Latin American music with uh, electronic and experimental beats, and so that's. Mm-hmm.